This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, April 27th. I'm Kate Trinko. Today, I speak to Mary Harrington. She is the author of the new book, Feminism Against Progress. We talk about feminism, of course, the transgender movement, the war on embodiment, and much more. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. Looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues from America's outpost here in Washington? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. You'll get top conservative research, a rundown of important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, and hot takes from our experts. Sign up at heritage.org agenda or at the link in the show notes. Joining me today is Mary Harrington, the author of the new book, Feminism Against Progress. Mary, thanks for joining the Daily Signal podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I just want to say that I really enjoyed your book. Uh, It's very thought provoking, had me underlining a lot of things. Um, And when it came to this podcast, I really wasn't sure where to begin, (laughs) but you have to begin somewhere. So I wanted to ask you, you write a bit about your online life as a young woman, including, um, I don't know if posing is the right word, but acting as a man named Sebastian. Tell me about that and how it affects your views on sex and transgenderism. Well, for the avoidance of doubt, I don't know that I ever exactly identified as a man. My, um, my apologies. No, 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 it's fine. I mean, it, it was it was kind of ambiguous in the book. Okay. Um, but I did change my name to Sebastian for a while. I went by Sebastian. And then mostly to see what it felt like. Okay. Um, and I think it's in a way that's kind of hard to hard to convey now. Um, it was part of a whole a whole vibe that I felt very strongly in the noughties, where social media was just happening, Web 2.0 was just happening. Um, I was right there, and I, I founded a web startup, and I was very involved in the kind of the London end of that tech explosion, and was just really excited by it because it felt like something very new and very very thrilling was happening, and it really felt for a little while that we could just create our own realities. And that was and that was something that just really spoke to me, and it felt really appealing to me. And I and so much of my twenty-something life was was about just experimenting with how far you can take that. So you know, if I, I mean, the actually the the quote that springs to mind. I don't know if you remember that that famous quote from the White House aide after nine eleven, where he said, "We're an empire now, and we create our own reality." You uh, you, you remember that? I do not remember that. But... Um, somebody was saying, "Well, you know, this is." Yeah, we create our own reality, and you and you just respond as you will, and then we'll create, we'll 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 act again, and you'll create your own reality again. And there was this, there was this real sense that that what what was actually there and what was real had come adrift and and could just be remade at will through through sheer sheer willpower or or sheer energy somehow. At least that was that was what I kind of wanted to be true, um, and I just wanted to see how far I could take it. Um, not not all the way into changing my sex, as it turned out. As it also turned out, and this is something I've reflected on a lot since, um, I didn't actually enjoy changing my name hmm. um, because it felt strange to ask people who had known me with my actual with my name name for so long to to perceive me otherwise than the way they already did. That felt like I was asking something of them which wasn't really it wasn't really mine to ask because their perceptions of them belong to them and not to me. Um, but again, I, I mean, this this is all kind of the, the, we're some we're some way off the usual kind of culture war territory, I guess, for transgenderism. 
Um, but but to me, this I mean, this this was the heart of it for me. Just how far can you take um, creating your own reality, and how far how how much can you ask of other people to change of their own perceptions and their own experiences of you? How far can you ask people to perceive you differently to the way they already perceive you? And how much of that is actually under my control? These were all questions I was really preoccupied with, and. Gender, I suppose, or sex, sex and gender was was only one of the fields that I that I found that I was exploring that in. You know, most most of my most of my interests were in digital art and experimental um, community building and political protest and you know every all, all manner of fields where people were were hell bent on on you know pushing reality in one direction or another. And that just that that was just a terrain that felt very interesting to me. Right. And I do think it's interesting because um, it seems like technology has allowed us to play with this for perhaps the first time in human history. And I think, you know, I was online a lot as a teenager and um, I mean, I'm still online a lot, but, you know, there was this sense of like these people don't know my family. They don't know me. They generally I don't think I ever had photos online as a teenager, Um, you know, and there was a sense of like I can maybe not quite be anyone I want to, but I can sort of define myself yes, in a way exactly, that... exactly, <laughs> exactly. It felt incredibly liberating. Yeah. Just to- like genuinely very freeing. You know, there's the joke about, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, <laughs> or um, actually actually a young moon-faced woman as I was then, um, rather than, you know, some this sort of glamorous Oscar, you know, uh, yeah. Oscar Wilde figure that I, I fancied myself as and kind of play acted at being um, but there was yeah there, there was something so liberating about just being able to create a self or a persona that was detached from from all of, all of the all of the baggage that you bring with you just inevitably as you accumulate real life connections and real world real real world friends and a, and a reputation and a track record right um, just... in life in in everyday offline life it's just interesting to think about whether some of this transgender stuff is just um as i think you put it or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if it's sort of the logical conclusion of that in some ways. Well, I feel it's I feel it's very connected. I mean, it's, there there were there have been people who sought to to present as the opposite sex prior to the existence of the internet. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously not the only factor, but I do think it's acted as an accelerant. And if you look at if, if you if you look at the prevalence of cross sex identification in young people, and the and the arrival of mass and, and the mass adoption of smartphones, it's pretty much pretty much. Uh, it's not a coincidence that they both happened at the same time. I think they are. They the internet has acted as an accelerant. Um, it's a point I've made in one or two places. But if you if you, I mean, if you are if you are under twenty now, or certainly, or even under twenty five, chances are you spent a fair amount of your youth interacting with others in this disembodied world and creating cells for yourself that were radically radically detached from your physiological self and your embodied self and, and all the relationships and the, and the constraints that come with that. And, and I can see why there's this intergenerational tension in, ter- in how people perceive the, the, the question of gender ideology and older men and women say, well, no, of course you can't change your sex because we remember the before times where it was just taken for granted that this was just, this was just a given and embodiment and selfhood were, bra- were broadly the same thing. Even if you didn't like that, it was just, you know, suck it up. Mm-hmm. But I think if you've grown up with a with with an experience of selfhood and perhaps a, you know, your primary experience of sociality is this this disembodied one. If you spent a lot of time in Minecraft or whatever, mm-hmm. rather than rather than in, in playgrounds or 
rounded other people's houses. And this again is this again tracks the statistics. Kids are kids and young people interact great, a great deal more in digital domains now rather than in real life. And outdoor play and outdoor roughhousing and um, just being being able free free rangeness for children has has deteriorated over the last twenty years. Concurrently, as internet sociality has has accelerated, and so so perhaps it's no wonder that they see it as a question of natural justice that you should be able to to apply the same rubric of disembodied selfhood first in what the kids would call meat space, some of them anyway. Well, so along those lines, you write about detransitioners. Detransitioners, of course, are people who have had some form of gender transition and then ended up deciding that they didn't want to transition. Um, and you write that detransitioners highlight the great lie of, I think you call it meat Lego Gnosticism. Is that? That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very fun. Uh, namely, the, the great lie is that we can be freed from dependence on our bodies and implicitly one another. So can you unpack this a little bit? So, okay, I'll, I'll start with meat Lego. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. kind of self-explanatory. You know, this, this idea that we can, we, our bodies are not integrated wholes and, and exist as a gestalt, that they're somehow a, 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 an assemblage of parts that can be disassembled and reassembled and remodeled at will, like mm -hmm. bits of Lego. Um, it's kind of a kind of a gross idea when you put it like that, but there's, but that that uh, that idea that we can be disassembled and reassembled at will is is implicitly present in a great deal of um, the the positive cases for transgenderism, where people people are saying you know I should, and 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 indeed the 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 language used by the surgeons who who do this, I remember there's a Joanna Olson Kennedy I believe her name is she's a she's a well known slash notorious depending on who you ask, um, pediatric gender clinician who who gave a talk some some time ago where she said um she's talking about she's talking about radical double mastectomies for for adolescent girls who identify as male and she was saying well you know and if, and if you decide later on you want breasts well you can just go get some and you know those those of us who've had children and who've breastfed are like hang on a minute that's not really how it works you know like breasts like plastic implant yeah, silicon implants and the kind of breasts that I use to feed my daughter are not the same, you know. And and this this woman who say, oh, you can just go get some, you know, as if you can just place. I'm sort of gesturing at my body in this ridiculous way, um, as <laughs> though so you can just you know click bits in and click bits out. Right. Um, it, it's just not true. It's just not true. And um, and because of because of this falsehood, which has now been so widely embraced, there are a great many young people with irreversible scars who there. I mean, Abigail Schreier has written very powerfully a book about this irreversible damage mm -hmm. so you think it carries into um when we start viewing our bodies this way and not depending on them we also have trouble with dependence in our personal relationships or did i maybe i'm putting words in your mouth again uh so i guess i probably come at this from a slightly different direction okay um i mean i've, I've what i've characterized the the aggregate effect of setting out to master and and if and also you know along with it commodify the human body and human emotional and social spaces as a kind of war on relationships mm -hmm. which is to say to the extent that we can remodel or control or master aspects of our of our human nature or our human physiology we're also not existing interdependently with others mm. you know in in those realities you know if i say if i say i can be if, if i say i can be a man let's say i i say i can be sebastian actually this is that's probably a good illustration of um what i what i experienced as the limits to that and where where really the where really interdependence as i 
that I, the, the interdependence that I advocate for comes into radical tension with this this sort of meat Lego vision mm-hmm. of who we are and what we can do. Um, so if I let's let, let's say I want to go by Sebastian, um, in, and, and let's say I want people to perceive me or you know, respond to me as if I were the opposite sex, mm-hmm. um, I have to ask everybody who's known me since I was a baby to to completely remodel their their internal in, in, aggregate understanding of who I am. And and then to to address me and engage with me in the terms that I choose and not the terms that they choose. Bluntly, I just think that's too big of an ask. I don't think it's possible to. It, it, there's, there's something fundamental. There's something deeply deep. There's something deeply disturbed about imagine about this fantasy that you can reach into somebody else's perceptions mm-hmm. and reorder them in line with how how you want to be perceived. There's something that there's something just profoundly. It's a basic mistake. You can't do that. It's not possible because you can't control what other people think. Um, it what what it recalls to me actually is um, my my experience with very young children where they haven't quite figured out yet that the the world isn't an extension of their own of their own ego. Um, and so they'll they, they'll expect they'll, they'll expect other people to know what they want before they before they want it, or they'll get really angry because you're not you're not just doing you're you're, you're not doing the thing, whatever the thing is, and they won't tell you what the thing is. And um, the, the, but that 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 sense that the world is just an extension of my selfhood is developmentally inappropriate for an adult, I think. We should say, and there's something, there's something, there's something very strange going on when that seems to have become normalised as as a not just a an appropriate way to expect other people to interact with me, but also also a matter of social justice that you should perceive me in the way that I I wish to be perceived, um, and and fundamentally, yeah, and and in order to in order to ask that of you, um, I I I in asking you to do that, I'm refusing to grant you any space to to form your own relationship to me so in a sense it does really it wages war on any possibility of us having a relationship and and as such it wages war on the possibility of existing in in interdependence and in in relationship um because i i refuse to accept the possibility that you might see me differently to the way i wish to be i want to be seen myself i mean this all seems very metaphysical but i i see what i what i see in the 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 rage um the rage and the distress that's expressed by people when they're, for example, when they're misgendered. There's the, the famous video clip of, of the the very tall male yelling, "It's ma'am, it's ma'am." I, I'm sure you know yes. the one I'm talking yes. about. Um, but there's the, there's some, something going on there where he's he this 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 individual is just furious. He's furious because he's not being perceived in a way that he wishes to be perceived, and it's just not possible. But despite that, it's not possible for me to look at that individual and think this is a woman it's just not possible um and the, the and and the yeah and and there's this sort of narcissistic rage that erupts and i don't know i think this i i don't think it's right just to say you're being a narcissist and you should you should do better i think there's something something's fundamentally broken in how in how people are growing up and i, I don't understand i'm not sure i fully understand what it is you know i have some i have some speculations about what might be contributing to it but i think there's something fundamentally broken about the way we're teaching people to expect the world to respond to them if this is now becoming widespread. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yes, I'm <laughs> not the biggest fan of metaphysics, but I don't think you can avoid them in some of these conversations. But putting aside transgenderism, um, you talk a lot about embodiment in the book. And of course, I think for women and feminism, embodiment is such a huge um, 
I don't know, source of conflict, I would say, like women's magazines are endlessly about, you know, dieting or fat positivity, which seem to be opposite extremes that are both problematic. Um, you see Instagram where even, you know, people like the Kardashians are using filters galore. Um, and also speaking of the Kardashians, um, you have this whole culture of cosmetic surgery and procedures and even... Um, you know, I feel like I'm hearing more and more like, well, you can't be a professional woman even in your 20s and 30s and not use a little bit of Botox. So how, I mean, that's a lot of things to throw at you. <laughs> but um, yeah, feminism, embodiment, all these different things going on. I mean, how do I'm, women deal with it? If I'm completely honest, I, I think if we're, if we're going to be consistent and we're going to say transgenderism is... It, that, that that's a that, that's a misapplication a misuse of medical technology then I, I would I would say to be coherent we have to extend that to cosmetic procedures I mean where you invasive cosm mm -hmm. I mean I, I think you can't I don't think you can reasonably stop people wearing makeup um, <laughs> but you know once 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 it comes to invasive medical procedures I mean it's it seems it seems to, it makes no sense to me that we should we should be cool with mums giving their daughters breast augmentation for their 16th birthday and and not be cool with mums giving their daughters breast breast removal for their 16th birthday. I mean, you know, at the end of the day like what what really is the difference? You know, and <laughs> I suppose I suppose you could make the case that at least breast augmentation, you know, bears some some kind of a relationship to a sort of normative understanding of what a young woman looks like and as such it's not quite so aggressively um, aggressively anti-normativity and you know I don't know. The, the conservative case for breast implants is not one I particularly <laughs> want to make. Um, but, but but to me, to to me, they're all they they all fall under the order of meat Lego. So how how do women respond to this culture? How do they deal with these pressures? It's incredibly hard. I mean, I I was I didn't want to be embodied, and I didn't want to be a woman for so long. I mean, I don't think I'd have changed my name to Sebastian if I didn't if I wasn't deeply ambivalent about being female. And it really wasn't until I became a mother that I saw any of the upsides of being female at all. And up up until that point, I, I had just, you know, it had just seemed to be all downside. You know, people perceive you as being, people are more likely to perceive you as being dumb or frivolous. You know, you're less physically strong. You're you're potentially at greater risk of sexual harassment or other or the other forms of violence. Yada, 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 yada. You know, there's a thousand and one ways that, that it's, it's, there are some, there are obvious downsides to being female. And particularly, you know, by the time I was, I was a young woman in, in the, in the late 1990s, there wasn't a whole lot of chivalry left. Um, and, and such chivalry as there was, I was fairly kind of, again, un uncomfortable and defensive about because it felt as condescending as it did um, welcoming. And so, yeah, I mean, given all of this, yeah, the, the, the idea that actually I might, I might go the other way and lean into being female and lean into being embodied as a woman would, would have felt incredibly counterintuitive to me as a, an early 20-something. I'd have recurring nightmares about accidental pregnancy. There seemed to be nothing really great about it at all. And I can't really say what changed, except that it became gradually, very, very slowly apparent to me over the course of my 20s and beyond um, that I was just less nuts the more, the harder I worked at being, being at peace with my body. And that didn't really start with... Um, I didn't really start with my reproductive physiology. That just started with going to yoga classes and, you know, and doing Couch to 5K and going running a lot and, you know, <laughs> trying, trying to live a healthy, normal life. It, it, was just, it just became slowly apparent to me that being at peace with, with the body, which I couldn't, at the end of the day, couldn't really escape, you know, no matter how much time I spent in the internet, at the, you know, eventually I'd still get hungry or need to sleep. And, you know, they're, they're, there you are again, wherever you are, there you are. And we... <laughs> You know, in, still inextricable from your body, no matter how hard right. you, you have tried to escape it.
And eventually I was like, okay, fine, okay, we've just got to, we, we, we've got to do this, you know. <laughs> well, what's the movie where the two convicts are shackled together? I don't know. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's I'm a, terrible it's with a, pop culture. <laughs> it's a, it's an old movie. It's a, it's a comedy. These are two, two unlikely characters who, who escape, who escape from prison, but they're handcuffed together, and you know, and, and hijinks since you. Um, anyway, that, that was a bit how it felt at the time. You know, it was not, it was not a very happy relationship. But I was like, okay, fine, okay, we, we, we got to do this. We're going to do this. But it's interesting to me that yoga and running and like being with your body and noticing the hunger is what. Mm led to again just sort of to your your theme of being out of the digital world mm. and into the physical yeah that's where the healing it sounds like occurred yeah absolutely and I, I found it very striking that in abigail's book irreversible damage she describes she describes one detransitioner or, or a, a young woman who identified as as the opposite sex and who who recovered you know she she mm. desisted and, and she desisted because her parents um but they basically unplugged her from the internet and they took her to live on a horse farm for six months. And so she spent, instead of spending all of this time doom scrolling with, you know, young, you know, trans influencers, you know, showing off their, their chest scars and whatever. Mm -hmm. Instead of, you know, she was out in the fields and she was cleaning the horses and she was, she was, she was embodied and active and doing something offline in the real world. And by the end of that, she was like, she, 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 she was fine. She was fine with her, with her, she was fine being as she was again. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, I mean, the 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 dis, the the pull that, that the digital world exerts on all of us to in inciting us and inviting us away from away from presence in in the place where we are is so phenomenally strong. I mean, if you think, you know, you're, you can be you can be sat at dinner and your phone will go ping, and there's always the temptation to reach for it. We have a blanket ban on phones at at meal times nice. in the house. We have. Um, various the the constraints pretty much escalate escalate on a six month basis because in, as as time as more time goes on we realise that it's directly inimical to family life it's directly inimical to just being being present and being together and really I mean just on a on a you know the the most wonderful times I have with my family at home are when we're all digging the garden together and I and I I I, I seek that out very intentionally that sounds very idyllic yeah. so oh. Well, just, yeah, just, just, just that, and, and to round the thought off in the other direction. But those people I know who are extremely online, and I, I can't, I am one of them. I mean, I, I say all of this about the internet with with a, a kind of ambivalent love because I've I love the internet, and I've been I've been extremely online for twenty years. <laughs> and everybody I know who is as anywhere near as online as me also has an extreme physical practice of some kind. You know, a lot of the men lift, some of the women lift too. I run like a lot. Um, and I and I I have a, a very strict rule for myself that if I'm out running, I am not allowed to stop and photograph the landscape and then tweet about it. Absolutely, absolutely verboten. So, so you really have to live in the moment when you're running. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I and it's not possible to scroll and run. It's just not physically possible. <laughs> and everybody I know who's extremely online and not barking mad does something like that. And it, it, what it is varies from person to person. And I think, you know, in as much as we're going to be able to resist that, that siren song of disembodiment, which leads to the, I mean, this is, this is really the, to, to come to a very long way around to un, having unpacked Meet Lego to unpack the Gnosticism bit. I mean, I've borrowed that from, um, it's not strictly Gnosticism, but like, you know, the, the risk of going down a theology rabbit hole. Um, the, the Gnostics were a bunch of early Christian sects who thought that the material world was bad and evil. And I don't, I, I don't view the contemporary revulsion with the physical world and the, the longing to escape into digital realms as, as strictly Gnosticism in the ancient 
sense. Um, but it's, it, it, it shares, it, it has in common with that ancient Gnosticism, a distaste for the real world. And so I've borrowed the term Gnosticism um, along with this idea of meat Lego to characterise um, this, this sort of coming apart of, coming up, coming apart of the human person um, into, into radically re, reassemblable bits of meat and a disembodied selfhood, which I see as just now, now being largely normalised through the culture. And the most, the most visible and controversial aspect of that is transgenderism, but it's by no means confined to that. It's, 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 once you start seeing it, you, you see it everywhere. So you write a lot about the pill and how it affected um, history and feminism and women and men's relationships. And I'm curious as to what are your overall thoughts about it? And, um, you know, if you could wave a wand and either have the pill created or not created, mm. what would you do? <laughs> I mean, those, those sort of counterfactuals, like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we, we are where we are at the end of the day, as they say in the Foreign Office. Um, the pill, I've argued a few times, is the first transhumanist moment. Uh, you know, when, when you say transhumanism, uh, most people will imagine, you know, humans with cyborg eyes or, you know, the Terminator or, you know, people grafting, grafting robot arms onto themselves or giving themselves tentacles or whatever, like very sci-fi stuff. But actually, the, the reality of the reality of transhumanism is very much more banal. It's any medical technology that we use to upgrade ourselves rather than fix something that's gone wrong with normal. And I mean, everybody has a pretty good gestalt sense of what normal looks like for a human being. I mean, kids have that by the time they're two or three. And if you have, you know, most parents will, will know the embarrassing moment where your, your, your kid points out somebody who's deviated from that normal on the street. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mummy, look at that man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, it's a, it, it, it's a, that, that, that's a gestalt that, that normal people put together very early on. And it's an, um, and the, the transhumanist vision is that, 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 that that's not the end. That's just a starting point. You know, that's, that, that's the floor. The ceiling is, isn't really there. And we can and should use any technologies at our disposal, you know, as, as we see fit to, to, to improve on, on, on the, the gestalt that a toddler would be able to, to, um, to recognise on the street. Um, and the, the contraceptive pill does that. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't fix something that's broken, like, you know, a, a medication to treat a kidney which isn't working properly. It breaks something that's working in line with the with the desires of the individual who who wants to wants to turn off their their ability to conceive, and and that and I've I've argued in the in feminism against progress that this is this is a radical paradigm shift in what in what we understand medicine to be, and really a great many of the of the biological technologies which are so controversial, particularly among conservatives, are downstream of that moment. Because uh, once you once you've accepted in principle that we can upgrade normal when it comes to women's reproductive physiology, why should we not extend that, for example, into people remodeling their bodies in line with their inner identity? I mean, it's it's hard really to see how, how why why we why should we stop there? Why should we not continue? Why should we not grant? Why why should we not treat um, normal sex dimorphism as a medical problem in need of solutions and create you know in vitro gametogenesis so that so that two people of the same sex can have a child that they're both genetically related to why why not um, and at the end of the day, if, if the human normal is a problem to be solved, then in in theory there are, there's nowhere you can't go with it and I think it's very easy to get stuck on the trans issue but to my to my eye the like the the biotech innovators who who fund 
a lot of the a, a lot of gender ideology and you know the the people who are who are propagating the legal changes which support um, gender gender ideology and gender identity over sex dimorphism don't massively care about the people who suffer immense distress as a, because they feel that their gender identity is not aligned with their physiology they don't actually care about those people if they cared about those people they would also they would they'd be throwing as much money at helping detransitioners as well as transitioners this is not a, this it's it's like the it's the your expressive your 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 desire to medicalize your your expressive options only works in one direction if if actually what you want is medical help returning to normal, then you're on your own. You know, good luck with that. And I think and, and what what I see going on there, the bigger picture. Um, again, it's very much more banal than people you know, the, the kind of sci-fi vision of transhumanism. It's more about deregulating or de delegitimizing the idea of human normal as a precursor to deregulating the human body and opening opening it up to commerce. A lot of food for thought there. Uh, to pivot a little bit, I did want to ask you about uh, the concept that you call big romance hmm. in your book. Um, I found it very interesting as someone in my 30s who's dated online <laughs> for many years, had a lot of friends who have issues. I have a great boyfriend right now, but you know, this is the calm amidst the storm. So what are your thoughts on how we're pursuing yeah, romantic relationships these days? Well, I, sh I should qualify everything I say by saying I've been on the shelf for well over a decade. I've been happily married for a decade. Congratulations! Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the, it's the most the most life changing, wonderful thing that ever happened to me. Um, I very deliberately don't talk about the nuts and bolts of my the inner workings of my family life because it, it belongs to it doesn't just belong to me. It's not really mine to to share with the public. But but I will I will say that it was the most life life changing, wonderful, transformative thing for me, and I highly recommend marriage to anybody. Okay, great. So happy endings um, can so, happen. So so ha happy endings do exist, and and really I was I, I was there I I was dating really only at the beginning of online dating. It was it was not really back when I was still single. It was kind of embarrassing to have met your partner online. Um, it was it was that was very much an outlier situation. And now yeah. it's like meeting someone in real life is yeah. the weird what? thing. Why would someone approach really? you at a bar? That's so creepy. So much, so much so, in fact, that I gather I gather from friends with teenage kids that it's it's considered a radically radical no no to to date among your friendship pool. It's com it's completely socially unacceptable. You just, it's not allowed. It's complicated. Right, and I, I was like, what? <laughs> what? This is the but 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 but. but, but. What? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't even know where to start with that. But yeah, I mean, big romance as I've as I've characterised it. Well, I think you know, we we probably need to dive a little bit into the history. Um, the the first part of the book, I spent I spent quite a while looking at um, the, the 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 broad social and cultural impacts of the industrial revolution on on family life and on family formation. Um, I wrote a whole chapter about um, well we, about how we ended up with this with this idea that sex could be a marketplace. Um, and I, I, I took that all the way back to the 18th century, which, which was the first time. And I, this, this actually started just to give some context. Um, I, I became very, very preoccupied with this question. You know, is sex a marketplace? Can, is, it, is that is that a, does it? Because it seemed to me intuitively that this is a category error. This is you know, sex. Sex is not a marketplace. And so I looked at you know Google Ngram. Um, it's a it's a Google tool that you can use to scan Google's entire digitized archive okay. and see and look at the prevalence of a term over time. And I saw, I, thought, I was like, when did people start talking about sexual marketplaces? And I looked it up and I thought, and, and it turns out that it, the term was, didn't really, wasn't a thing before the 1960s. And I thought, huh, interesting. Okay, so 
So we can we can date that to approximately the arrival of the birth control pill, the, the idea that sex is a marketplace, which tracks. I'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was like, what are there other terms, other other cognate terms um, sort of in the same kind of in the same sort of conceptual ballpark that I should look up as well? And then I looked up marriage marketplace and it turned out that that goes a whole way, a whole way further back. And I thought, how oh, this is interesting. And of course, then you start thinking about Jane Austen, and you think about, I think you think about the, the the immense discourse in the in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries about um, finding a suitable husband, mm -hmm. and it struck me that um, there was something changed, and then I, some, something changed in the around the arrival of the industrial era in terms of how men and women formed relationships. Um, Christopher Lash writes writes superbly about this in his book Women and the Common Life. He has a chapter on on how how marriage formation changed from the from the pre modern to the industrial era, um, and probably the most salient point is that women women became functionally much less useful. I mean, there's not you know they, they didn't become less people, but they they lost economic agency in the household with the arrival of the industrial era. And whereas previously a, 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 a wife would have probably have been a farmer's wife or some kind of a peasant's wife. And she would have worked, you know, she'd have been you know, pro processing raw materials, making clothes. She'd have been doing, you know, she'd have been doing what was necessary yeah, stuff, <laughs> necessary, necessary stuff for the survival of the household. Um, and then then all of a sudden you, you arrive in the industrial era. A lot of that work bleeds out of the home and you're left with the private home, which is re reframed as a, as a space of respite from the world of work, which is presided over by, by the, the bourgeois housewife um, and is no longer a sphere of productivity. It's a sphere of safety and it's a sphere for the, for the, for the moral education of children. And, and this, is, this is all very well. Um, but under those circumstances, women actually have a whole lot less leverage and they're still living under the, the, the broadly speaking, the political order that, that, that governed the pre-modern era, you know, including, including the rules governing who has, who has formal political power, which was almost always men. Mm -hmm. Um, because the, the basic unit of the of the of economic life was the household in the pre-modern era, and so you could only really have one head of a household. And so, and 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 because men have typically wielded formal political power, in practice, what that meant was that with the arrival of the industrial era, um, women women lost the lost the forms of agency that they'd used to to counterbalance that formal political power, and they hadn't really gained any any anything to counterbalance that. Does that make sense? It does. So so in, under those circumstances, provided. Provided you have a husband who, who loves and respects you, you're okay, probably. Um, but you know, should should you have a husband who tyrannizes you or beats you or drinks all the money away or something like that, you know, you, you have very little redress. You have very little recourse. Um, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so, under those circumstances, you 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 see the emergence of the companionate marriage. And this is this is really, I mean, Pride and Prejudice. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. Of course, <laughs> uh, Mr. Darcy is the quintessential um, ideal husband for a companionate marriage. He's rich. He's intelligent. He respects his he respects Elizabeth's intelligence. He's morally upstanding. He 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 values her moral fabric. You know, he loves mm -hmm. her as a person. And and really, what 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 Austen is depicting there, I mean, as, as well as being brilliantly written in a superb drama, you know, she's she's setting out the ideal template for a relationship under the new political order, um, under this where women in, in practice have very little political leverage. You know, the the optimum setup for for not having a terrible time as a wife and mother. So this is the companionate marriage. Um, but after after the nineteen sixties, when women entered, started began entering the workplace en masse. I mean, something something akin to that companionate marriage held pretty much up to the sexual revolution, because it was still broadly presumed that that women would would focus their energies on 
on the on the private domestic sphere, broadly speaking, and and men would broadly. So this is what conservatives call traditional traditional gender roles, which I characterise as actually being distinctively modern, um, because they only really emerge with the industrial era. But you know, I'll call them, I'll call them industrial industrial uh, gender roles, um, and 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 companionate marriage is a critical part is a crucial part for women of of hedging against the ways that that your your situation can go wrong under industrial gender roles slash traditional whatever you want to call them. Um, but but the mo the point when women begin to gain begin to enter the market on the same terms as men, which really begins with women's suffrage, um, but then but then proceeds you know, through with this sort of gradual and then mass entry into the workplace with the arrival of contraception, just for, for very practical reasons, because women at that point can plan. Right. And, you know, those those women who are ambitious and um, intellectually curious and so on, you know, are, you know, not unreasonably going to seize these new opportunities. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a net, obviously a net beneficiary of that. And it's, that's, this is, these are not things that I would want to roll back. Mm -hmm. um, but but um, companionate marriage at that point goes out of the window because it doesn't really hold anymore. You know, when women can, in theory, earn their own money and, you know, we have the vote and we have all, we have all the forms of political agency that whose absence companionate marriage was meant to hedge against. So we don't really like and, and companionate marriage is really what I'm calling the origin of big romance. And under those circumstances where it's not, it doesn't really have a practical purpose anymore, this, this sort of big romance, um, it, it evolves again into something, some, something very much more, I think I want to say consumerist. Hmm. And so it's a, a, a sociologist I've quoted in the book characterizes it as the self-expressive marriage, which is to say a relationship whose principal purpose is not uh, solid. It's not economic solidarity as in the Middle Ages. It's not. It's not even really forming forming a family and raising children. It's self actualization. And should should it fail on that front, you can end it at any time for any reason. And this is really what I've been characterising as big romance, it, and it, or at least the, in in the modern. When I call for us to abolish big romance. Um, I'm not saying we should get rid of the companionate marriage where, where this is still appropriate. And I'm not saying that you should marry somebody that you don't really care for. Um, but what I am saying is that the self-expressive marriage is catastrophic. It's, it's a catastrophically poor model for any kind of family formation. And fundamentally, it's a, very, it's a very poor one for surviving in the world that I think we find ourselves in now in the 21st century, because it's predicated on the assumption that all of us will be able to get by just fine on our own economically and physically and yeah, materially. And I and when when I look at you know the 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 sort of rolling poly crisis that we've been in since two thousand and eight, and I, I listen particularly to early to Zoomers talking about their their who are, who are universally pretty much universally in a state of despair about their economic prospects, and I think you've inherited a model for relationship formation which treats it purely as a as a form of self expression and self actualization. What you guys need is solidarity because otherwise you're stuffed. There's absolutely no way any of you are going to be able to form families unless you're treating it as something radically more much more foundational than 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 self actualizing. And if if you're coming if you're coming into a, a obviously pretty economically scarce and potentially radically unstable life with a model of relationship formation that actually makes that worse rather than better, then you're, you're, you're stuffed. Um, so when I say abolish big romance, really, I'm speaking to I'm, I'm speaking to the early 20 somethings and saying, you know, I, I strongly recommend marriage because it's life changing. And I strongly recommend doing it sooner rather than later and treating it as the start of life and not the capstone of, an, of, of a life as an autonomous individual within the market. Well, definitely a radical message today. <laughs> well, Mary Harrington, thank you so much for being on um, her book, which is incredible. If you want more of these insights, it's called Feminism Against Progress. Thank you so much for having me.
And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't gotten a chance, please be sure to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, please make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a good day. And we'll be back with you all at five o'clock for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.